opportunity tonight in our own community. Or if you're going to be in St. Francis County, there will be a gathering at the St. Francis County Courthouse where there will be prayer at 6 p.m. over this upcoming election and uh, obviously seeking the Lord's will for our leaders, but also seeking that we would be able to trust God for whoever he provides, whether we agree with them or not, that God's going to get the glory, the ultimate most glory out of it. And so that is tonight at 6 p.m. at the Courthouse Square down here in Ironton or at the Courthouse Square in Farmington, um, whichever one you're closest to, I would highly encourage you to go. And then our men's Bible study will be this Wednesday at 7 p.m. We're going to start James chapter 2 this week. Also, um, opportunities are available to serve in the nursery in November and December. Obviously, uh, not every week will we necessarily uh, be having kiddos here, but we do need people available and if, you're not, if you do sign up and you're not able to come, just call us. Let us know, hey, something came up. And then we, you know, because we're depending on you unless you call and say, hey, something came up and I can't be here. Yeah, she actually got the sign-up sheets up this morning. So they're back there. And then uh, also we're going to have a Arcadia Valley Chapel Thanksgiving dinner. It will be the week before Thanksgiving. We haven't settled on a date. It will either be Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, one of those. So if you have suggestions, send them to me, and then because uh, we want the most people to be able to, to come. This is something where you can invite family members, you can invite friends, anybody that doesn't come to the church. We want to have a Thanksgiving meal, especially for those if you've got neighbors that won't necessarily have a Thanksgiving meal at their own house. Maybe they don't have the means, or maybe uh, they don't have a lot of family around anymore. We've got plenty of those kind of neighbors in our neighborhood, and so... Um, we're planning on setting up all the tables, getting plenty of chairs, and invite the community in to have a nice meal. And then, uh, let's see, December 3rd, there will be a ladies' day. I think it's called uh, Breath for the Soul or Fresh Air for the Soul or something like that. Anyway, um, there will be, uh, what are those cards called? Save the Dates. There will be Save the Dates on the back table next week by the time we're here for Sunday morning service. But if you uh, want to go to that, it'll be a Saturday, and there will be uh, light breakfast in the morning. There will be teaching and worship, and it's all just a bunch of ladies getting together. There's a couple of videos they're going to show, and then there will be a catered lunch, and it doesn't cost a thing. So if you would like to go to that, I would highly encourage you to do it because it'll be refreshing. Journey to Bethlehem is something we did last year, um, and we're going to go on December 4th. Heather texted me last week. She was like, let me know when you're going to do that, because I didn't get to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. They have one up by St. Charles. We just drove by there yesterday. Um, but they also have one in Sullivan, and we're going to go to that one. Uh, so if you're a motion sick person, take your drama mean. We'll, we'll laugh at you while you're giggly. But as we're going down Highway 185, going out there, it's a really good time. Usually we eat some food, and then we go over there. Is that the Friday or the Saturday? That's the Sunday. So Sunday, December 4th. So it'll be the day after the 3rd. Okay, gotcha. All right. So I'll send out an email so everybody remembers. Um, but I, I think last year we had more people excited about that than anything else we did the whole year, which I agreed with because you kind of walk through. You go to see the, um, the nativity you see the wise men, and you get to interact with them, and it's, it's pretty neat. Lucy last year was kind of 
upset about the soldier yelling at us, you know, and they talk back to you and everything. So, um, Also, um, if you guys want to weigh in on this or not, um, Christmas is on Sunday this year. And I know everybody's got their own tradition of what they like to do. Um, my particular uh, preference is that we would have a Christmas Eve service, and then on Sunday we could stay at home with our families. Um, unless anybody's objecting to that, that's kind of what I'm planning. We'll go through on Christmas Eve, we'll read the uh, nativity story like we have every other year, and then on Sunday mornings you can spend, or on Sunday morning you can spend that time with your family. You can go all over the, the whole county if you want to and go see your families. Uh, but then, you know, I know a lot, of, for me, in years past when Christmas has been on a Sunday, uh, I've either not gone to church and felt guilty about it, but spent it with my family, or vice versa. So rather than be, feeling guilty, like, let's just, let's just do that. Is that all right with everybody? Yeah, that's what we'll do. All right, so Bible study. Let's, let's have that this morning. This morning we're going to begin a new book called Ephesians. Ephesians was written to a group that was in basically the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was no Arcadia Valley. Ephesus was more like a St. Louis and really more like an L.A. It was a place that everybody had ever heard of. And it was a place that there was lots of things going on um, that were new and upcoming. You know, for us, it's in California, if something happens... We know that within a few months to a year, it's going to kind of come east, whether it's fashion trends or music or uh, types of whatever, it's going to come. So in that culture, this was a place called Ephesus. So before we start the book, I want to go to Acts chapter 18, because in Acts chapter 18, we really see the first mention of Ephesus in the Bible, and it's because Paul is going on missionary journeys. On his second one, he comes upon this place after he leaves Corinth. He's kind of getting ready to go back to Jerusalem for the feast because he wanted to go celebrate the feast. Remember, he's a Jewish Christian. He didn't have to take and do the feast anymore, but his heart was to be there with the people of God during that time that they celebrated, uh, whether it was Passover or any of the other ones. But as he was leaving Corinth, where he had been for 18 months, he it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul still remained there in Corinth for a while, and then he took leave of the brethren, and he sailed to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, meaning Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, anywhere Paul went, this was his first thing he would do. He would go there and he'd find out where the synagogue was, where there was a foundation for belief in the God of Jacob, Yahweh. He would go to their place of meeting and he would speak to them concerning Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. So it says there that he went there to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a, long, a longer to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but he took leave of them, saying this as his reason, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So he leaves there, 
And we know that at the end of his second journey, he kind of makes some stops along the way, but he ends up back in Antioch, which is where the headquarters was for the early church. And then he goes back down to Jerusalem to worship. So once the feast is over and he's done worshiping, he gets back and he starts going on another missionary journey, his third one. And so verse nine, chapter 19 starts with him kind of beginning this third missionary journey. It says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that's where he'd left him, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, talking about taking the land, and I didn't put a map up here, but some of you might have one in the back of your Bibles, but uh, instead of going across the Mediterranean Sea, where he could go directly to where he wanted to go, he took the route, the land that was really south West Asia, and he took it through Achaia and um, Laodicea and some of the other places, but he ends up there in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, at a place called Ephesus. So that when he got there, having passed through the upper regions, it says, he came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? So he said to them, into what then were you baptized? He's trying to get an idea of what they believe about God to see where they're at so he can see where he needs to start. Does he need to go back to the very beginning or does he need to encourage them in the faith that they already have? So they said, we've been baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he showed up and he said this. He said, make straight the pathway of the Lord. I've come to basically bring the low places up and take the high places and bring them down. He was making a highway for God to be able to speak to them. And that highway was, uh, he was preaching that you need to repent of your sins. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry, but it's saying, I'm so sorry that I'm going to turn around and go in the direction that God wants me to go. So they had repented of their sins and believed in God. But they had a, while they had a belief, it wasn't a 100% complete belief. It wasn't mature yet. It, the seed had been planted, but they didn't believe in Jesus yet. So they had been baptized by John. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So he preached to them concerning this kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is spoken extensively about as Jesus was preaching to the masses. But the problem is, is that we are people with five senses. Taste, touch, smell, hearing, and there's one, there's one more. What am I missing? Sight. So, Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Well, if I can't use my eyes, how can I see it? How can I know it exists? And so over and over again in the New Testament, they're talking about the kingdom of God, but who has seen the kingdom of God? Well, we know who won't see the kingdom of God. We just read about it in Galatians. Idolaters, adulterers. Like he goes through this big long list of people who are living in a sinful lifestyle that will not repent. But those who will see the kingdom of God, it's something that we believe in, but we have not yet obtained 100%. We have a down payment. And so when he says, were you baptized? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is basically the down payment that we've been given, a guarantee that says one day you will obtain all of the rest of it. But it's still not something that we have yet. Though we have the kingdom of God living within us, we don't yet see it as we one day will see it. And so Paul preaches this to them. He says, um, it says there concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 9, he says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, that's what Christians were first called, those who followed the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before the multitude, he departed from them, and he withdrew the disciples. So when they didn't listen to him, he said, okay, I'm not going to beat a dead horse. I'm going to go to people who will listen, because time is precious. And then he backs away, and it says there, he withdrew the disciples, and then he started reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he backed away from the religious center of the community in the synagogue, and he went to the school of Tyrannus. The equivalent would be me saying, you guys aren't listening to me anymore. So I'll just go somewhere else where people will listen. And I go down to AV School District and say, hey, can I rent one of your rooms? If that was even feasible, I would rent one of the rooms, and anybody who wanted to come and hear the Word of God, I would teach it to them. But notice the result of this very simple and yet very important thing. It says there, this continued for two years, okay? And after two years, all who dwelt in Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So if I had been smart enough, I would have put a map up there and shown you Asia Minor. Ephesus was at the crossroads. It was the center point of culture. So if anything happened in Ephesus, it would travel to all the regions by the people that would come looking and being at Ephesus. It's where the temple of Diana was. There was a temple where they would worship this, um, basically this molded image of this woman who had many breasts. And her name was Diana of the Ephesians. Well, here's the deal. She was a false god, but they all made idols, and they all had idols in their homes. They would go and worship her. She was the goddess of success and fertility. So they would go to the temple. This was also kind of a port city. And they, when they went into the temple, they would get a female prostitute, and they would commit sexual acts with her. And so you could see this is a very promiscuous society. You could see that there was lots of sinful lifestyles that were just accepted. And so they were, in many ways, they, their consciences were seared. They were probably a people that didn't, they didn't blush at much. And so I think we can probably relate to the society that Paul is preaching to here. But it says, 
that as he continued there for two years, all those who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. doesn't say they all responded, but they had an impact on their culture that was so far-reaching, everyone was with. He was without guilt. And he'll go on to say that later in Acts chapter 20. He says, I have no blood on my hands concerning Ephesus and the surrounding regions because I have not shunned to proclaim to you the entire word of God. And because of that, whether they responded positively to the truth or not was not on him. Everyone heard. They didn't all listen, but they all heard it. They had the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. Now it says there in the next part of chapter 19 that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul in this region. People would try to get to him so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then there was a group that saw that Paul was doing this. And as they saw that Paul was doing this and that people were grabbing the aprons and the the rags, these were not like, you know, something that was embroidered and very nice. This is like he was working making tents out of animal skins. And so they would take these handkerchiefs that were covered from the sweat of his brow while he was working, and that's how people were getting healed. So where does the power come from? Well, it comes from the Lord, but there was a group there that didn't know that. They just thought that he was using Jesus' name as basically like a magic word. Like we tell our children, what's the magic word, please? And then they can get anything they want done, right? Not really. But they kind of looked at it like that, abracadabra. And so it says, then some of the itinerant, verse 13, Jewish exorcists, this was their occupation, they took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, what they did was they took the power out of what Paul was doing. Paul was able to do these things because of his relationship with the Lord. These men were trying to use his name as a magic word. And so they can't say, we exercise you or we call you to come out like Jesus did. By Jesus, they said, we basically call you to come out of these men or these women by the Jesus that Paul knows. You know, have you ever name dropped? Like, hey, I don't know so-and-so, but my buddy does. And because of that, I have influence or I have affluence, right? Well, that doesn't work with the Lord. There are no second-generation Christians. You're either a first-generation born-again believer or you're not. And these men, because they did this, um, they got their heinies whooped. It says in verse... Uh, 13, uh, after, verse 14, after they said this, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this. And it says in verse 15, the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Like, who are you to speak to me? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So they realized, oh my gosh, 
We've used the name of Jesus. It didn't work for us. Apparently there's something to this name because we've seen Paul cast out demons. We tried to do the same thing. These demons are no joke. We're playing with fire here. And so it says there that fear fell on them all. Anyone who saw this take place was all of a sudden shaking in their boots. They were scared. Now, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So they're seeing that there's power in the name of Jesus, but the way that they're using the name of Jesus, there's no power. And so they start to fear the Lord. And it says the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. When something like this takes place and people start fearing the Lord, they want to get right with the Lord. Because if there's that kind of power, I need to get right with him. This is a very real thing. I need to start confessing my sins and telling my deeds. Notice also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So people are confessing their sins. They're getting rid of their black magic stuff. They're burning their books. There's a, a true revival going on. This is what revival looks like. It doesn't look like a series of meetings necessarily. It looks like people coming into contact with the real power of God and going, I need to get right. I need to change some things. I need to change my habits, who I'm hanging out with, what I'm dwelling upon. And as they do that, it will cost them money. In this case, it cost them 50,000 pieces of silver, which I don't know how much that is in today's money, but it seems like a lot. And then they started confessing their sins. So we talked about the fact that when Paul came preaching and he taught in the, the, the school of Tyrannus for two years, everyone heard the word of the Lord. So then this thing, this miracle takes place. People are fearing the Lord. And then it says that this riot occurred. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but essentially what happens is the word of the Lord had so much of an impact in their area that people weren't worshiping idols anymore. There was a large enough group that had repented that were no longer purchasing these silver idols that it hurt the economy. People had repented of their sins so much that it changed the way they spent their money and their time. And because of that, it affected the economy. That's a large impact. Enough of an impact where the people that were making these silver idols got upset because it was hurting their pocketbook. Now, you want to hurt a lot of people, you start with their pocketbook. That's the place where most people are the most sensitive, right? Whether it's in the church or not. Well, these men, because of this impact economically, they want to talk to Paul and they want to deal with this. And so because of that, they end up dragging Paul and all the disciples, all the believers that they can find to this theater. They said, hey, these guys are disrupting our society. They're stopping us from progressing. They're stopping us because they're affecting our economy. And not only that, Diana, Diana of Ephesus is no longer being worshipped. Now, I question whether or not they really cared about Diana being worshipped. I really think it had more to do with their pocketbook. But my point is, 
when Paul goes into the, the theater, the amphitheater, where they all join together to have a riot and probably try to kill Paul, Paul doesn't even get to speak a word, and they notice that he's a Jew, and when they notice he's a Jew, they start screaming out at the top of their lungs, lungs great is Diana of the Ephesians, over and over and over for hours. And so it doesn't end well. Paul has an impact, but it seems like it just gets worse and worse for him. So this is the background of the book of Ephesians. Here we have this dynamic entrance of the gospel into this culture, and then we have what seems like the worst thing that could possibly happen, that the Christians are basically looked down upon because they destroyed the economy. But then... Uh, yeah, so basically that, that's where I wanted to stop. So turn back with me to Ephesians because I wanted you to hear all that background because it affects what we read in the, in the book. This is the culture that Paul is writing back to. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins writing to them and he says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that he would write grace and peace because um, his last take of being in Ephesus caused quite a bit of chaos and kind of the opposite of peace. But he writes, he says, I'm an apostle. I was sent by Jesus Christ according to the will of God. He chose me. He made me his vessel to send this message to you. And he, he, he even explains who he's writing to, the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, if you read commentaries about the book of Ephesians, it actually says that the, the word Ephesus was left out of here. Many people believe that the book of Ephesians was written to the region of Ephesians and then Asia Minor there. And so they would take this letter, they would make copies of it, and they would send it to all the churches in that region because they were all aware of the things that had taken place. But whether you believe that or not, it was written to this specific region. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. They call these the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You cannot experience the peace of God that he provides without first experiencing the grace of God and receiving his grace, his riches at Christ's expense. And then you also cannot experience peace with God or the peace of God until you've experienced peace with God that comes through your relationship with Jesus. That our war against God, our rebellion, was taken care of on the cross and it was put to death so that we could once again have our severed relationship with the Lord uh, fixed. But he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very similar to most of the letters that he's written to the churches. So he starts, and what I wanted to point out this morning is essentially that as he writes the book of Ephesians, he writes for three purposes. He starts out by telling them the riches they have because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Many times we focus on what we don't have versus on what we do have. And I say that as someone who loves to get on Craigslist and look for the, the next greatest and best thing that I can get for a discounted rate. 
You know, I, I'm, I'm always shopping on there. And sometimes it ends up going really well. And sometimes it doesn't fit. But my point is that sometimes we're so focused on what we don't have that we don't enjoy what we do have. And uh, I'll give you an example. Just a couple weeks ago, um, we, were, um, we went over to someone's house and the ambulance was there. And they had just had a minor heart attack. And as we went into the house, it, it's our neighbors, and so we're in there. And, and as we're standing there, we notice that they're putting her on a stretcher. But this stretcher's got, like, lights blinking on it. It's got all kinds of electronics on it. And then they start using it. Now, it did squeak a little, but it was electronic. Check it out. So they hit this button, and it raised her up. Now, I don't know about you guys. I grew up watching ER and Chicago Hope. And when they put somebody on a stretcher, you hit, you know, there's two people on each, there's a person on each side holding it, and then they hit this button and the legs fall due to gravity, and then next thing you know, they lock it in and they roll them out. But this thing was electric. It raised on its own. And so I, being kind of a redneck, I guess, I was like, hey, that's awesome. Check it out. It's, it's electronic. And the guy behind me, who works for a local municipality, he basically said, hey, look, we're a poor county. He thought I was being serious or that I was being sarcastic, that I thought it was really cool. And I just, I, it took me a minute to pick up on what he was saying, but I stopped and I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, we don't have much. You know, I know it's not very nice and it squeaks. And I was like, I've never seen anything like that. I went to Farmington, okay? We didn't have nothing like that. That thing's awesome. And he goes, he goes, oh, well, if you go to St. Louis, they got way better. It makes this look like nothing. I was like, isn't that how it is, though? No matter what we have, someone else always has something better, and we can't enjoy what we have because we think what they have is better. And so it ruins it for us. We can't ever enjoy anything, you know? And, and it's sad because God's given us so much. We live in one of the most affluent nations in the entire world. Even though the economy's not as good, even though... Uh, you know, there's different reasons for that. Even our average income is better than most of the world. We've got it good. We're rich. But that's not what he's going to talk about in this book. What he's going to start by talking about is what we have because of our relationship with the Lord. He starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, most people, if you hear them praying for God's blessing, they're not praying for what God's already given us. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We all get it all. He says, in the heavenly places in Christ, where moth and rust cannot destroy, we've already been given every rich that, that Jesus has, everything that God gave to Jesus everything. We have that. We're joint heirs. And then he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's a mouthful. But here's what I read. He's blessed us with everything we need. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. Do you know if you have a relationship with Jesus that that was planned out before the world was even put into existence? The Godhead got together and said, hey, we need to save humanity before we existed, before the world was created, or the heavens. That's what the original plan was. We want a relationship with these created beings that are going to be created in our image. And so how are we going to do that? Well, they're going to sin against us. So who's going to stand up and go and take their place and die for them? Jesus said, me. No hesitation. He said, I'll do it. I know I'm God, but I'm going to go take their place. And so we look at that and we go, okay, of course God would do that. But why? I heard, uh, I was listening to Pastor Boving at the First Baptist Church, and he was talking about God choosing or picking people. And he said, you know, even if you go to the pound and you look at the puppy dogs there, what do you pick? Do you go in there and go, hey, you know, that one looks kind of mangy and doesn't look like it would probably listen to me at all. I'll take that one. Or do we go, that one's the cutest. It looks really playful. doesn't have any blemishes on it. I like the color. We have all these things in our minds, even for animals. But is that, God how, is that how God picks us? Or does he look down and go, that one needs me the most, and it's going to take a lot of work. I want that one. It makes no sense. That's not how we pick things. If you go to a car lot, you don't look for the thing that's rusted through all the quarter panels. Hey, that one won't start. I'll pick that. No, we don't. We pick out the one that we've always wanted. If we can afford it, and we pick out something that's got a nice paint job, maybe resale red, and we, we pick out something that kind of, you know, it looks good. But God picks wrecks. He picks the worst. And, and I don't get that. But it says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world for this purpose, that we should be holy. That means pure and without blame before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He adopted us. Now, most of us have our parents around or did at one point, but to those that don't have parents that care for them or can take care of them, they know what it means to be adopted. It means I had nothing. I had nothing to offer. I had no one to provide for me. And these people that, I, now they're going to provide everything for me. They're going to stay up with me all night long when I'm crying. They're going to take care of my medical bills when I'm sick. They're going to do all these things, but they're not even really my parents. That's Jesus. That's what he does for us. According to the good pleasure of his will, it gives him pleasure to do this. It's, it doesn't put him off to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And then he goes on, he says, in him we have. And what I want you to notice in the next, I guess it's basically from verse 3 down to verse 13, uh, 14. Over and over I've got underlinings in my Bible. And every time I underline it says, in him we have, in him we have, in him we have. 
rather than looking at we, what we don't have, I think we really need to do what Paul was trying to get the Ephesians to do. Here's what you have. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what you have. There was a billboard uh, up there. It's, it's right before you get to 221. There's a, a trucker up there. He's got every one of his trailers has a big cross on the back. And then he's got this sign. And on that sign, sometimes there's stuff I agree with and sometimes there's not. But one of them said, if you want to be rich, start counting your blessings. You know, if you want to really realize how rich you are, count your blessings. And I was like, huh. So every day I'd drive by there and I would think about that. But that's what he's saying. Count what you have, not what you don't have. If you don't have it, perhaps it's not a necessity. He's chosen us. He's adopted us according to the pleasure of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and in prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. He is glorified through us. In him we have redemption. Just, just that word alone. You know what redemption is? It's kind of like... Uh, Seems like in the late 80s, early 90s, there was all these movies that came out where some rich guy and his family would lose their only kid because these bad guys would come along and they would take their child in order to get ransom money. So they'd leave a note made out of magazine clippings so you couldn't recognize their handwriting. And then they would say, basically, I want a million dollars or your kid dies. Right? And so that's what redemption is. When they, if they would get to that point and give them money, they would give them the ransom money, that's re, that child has been redeemed. And in the same way, our sins, we were sold under sin, we were in bondage to our sin, we were slaves to Satan, and as we were slaves to our sin and to Satan, Jesus Christ came in and he bought us back for what we owed. The penalty for sin is death. And so he paid the death penalty, and he redeemed us, not by someone else's blood, but he gave his own blood. And so he's redeemed us. If you turn with me real quick, Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God once again. In verse 44, he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he hid. And for joy over it, he went, he sold all that he had, and he bought the field. The idea is, is maybe you're out hunting on some land, and you dig up a hole, and you find a treasure. And you don't want anybody else to find the treasure, so you bury the thing again. But you don't own the land, and so you leave, and you're so excited about possessing that treasure that you bury it so nobody else can find it and then you go back to your home you sell everything you own you get the money 
and then you go and you buy that land, and you, you didn't buy it because you wanted the land, you wanted what was in the land. And we are that land. We're, we're buried treasure. Except the problem is we're thorny. There's nothing good about the land. It's just that God can be the most glorified in us. And so he sold everything he, that he owned. And I say that because if you turn, I was reading this this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. kind of says the same thing. Chapter 8 verse 9 in 2 Corinthians He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I heard that this morning, and I had just read the passage about the the parable of Jesus, and I had read what we were studying this morning, and I heard that this morning as I was listening to 2 Corinthians, and I was like, Jesus is this example. This is what he did. He had everything, and he left it. He became poor like we are, so that we could be rich according to his grace. He gave up everything. He sold it, because it wasn't as important to him as you and I were. And I don't know that we can even understand that, because we don't see things as being worthwhile like the Lord does. He sees things completely different. So we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, verse 11, he says, In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being chosen according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of God's will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So next week we're going to get a little bit more into this. but, But we have redemption, we've been adopted, we've been forgiven, and then he says we've been sealed. Now this kind of loses... Uh, weight in, in our society because when we have something that's in, it's sealed, it'd be like taking a, a package and mailing it UPS. Except you want to make sure it gets there and that if it doesn't get there, that the money is recouped because it's an expensive package. And so you get the insurance and the insurance kind of recoups the. But the idea is they didn't have UPS, you, they didn't have uh, mailing insurance, and so they would put the king's seal on a letter. They would take wax and they would melt it down and they would put it in this insignia and they'd put it on where the, le- the envelope would seal. They'd stick it on there. So anybody that would receive the letter, if the seal was gone or if it looked like it had been tampered with, then it, it would go back to the king. And whoever did it, they would be a, a comeuppance. They would they'd be in big trouble. And so the seal of the king guaranteed safe passage through whatever territory it was going through. Well, we're pilgrims. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. God gives us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a seal upon us that guarantees safe passage through this life. And many times we're like, is God even here anymore? Why isn't he getting me through this and that? 
And what he's saying is, you've been sealed. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. Because we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, even when we get into sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us and brings us back where we need to be. And so he says there, we've been sealed, and that is a sign of the Lord's love. So we've been redeemed, we've been adopted, we've been forgiven, and we've been sealed. And we are a people of his possession, now being brought to pass by the effective work of his will. So that was God's plan all along. But what I want you to notice is that the key phrase of this whole book is heavenly places. What he, we're going to start on next week because I ran out of time this week is that Paul, he says in verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you and make mention of you in my prayers. And here's his prayer. He writes it down. And there's a horse on Main Street. I couldn't even hold it together for that one. I'm like, hey, horse. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation, the revealing of the knowledge of him, and that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? It's one thing to know what an in, that you have an inheritance. It's a whole other thing to know what that inheritance is, right? And then he prays, What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Again, that key phrase. But his main prayer is that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That God's light would so shine into them that they would have the truth revealed to them about the kingdom of God that we cannot yet see. You know what I'm saying? Like, God, he wants God to open their eyes to the kingdom that they're a part of that they can't yet see. So that when they're living in this life and things are happening and taking place and discouraging them, that they could say, that's okay, this isn't where I'm really a citizen. I'm a citizen in heaven. And so I'm going to live for that kingdom as if it were just as real to me as the one I can see here. Does that make sense? And so may that be our prayer for each other. That the Lord would enlighten, that he would open our eyes, that he would take all the fuzziness out, that he would reveal to us in clarity what the kingdom of God is about, what our inheritance really is, and why it's worth living for. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us. That you chose us before we did anything that we could possibly do to earn it. That you've revealed to us your mysterious plan for salvation through Jesus. And that you've given us your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, open our eyes to the real reality. I mean... This life is just a shadow. It's just a vapor. It won't last forever. The kingdom that we are called to live for is one that's eternal and will never end. And so, Father, help us to see this life for what it really is and help us to see the rest of our lives in Christ as being worth living for, more importantly than living for this temporary shallow life that we live in now. 
Lord, we see the everyday battles and we're discouraged or encouraged by them. Lord, help us to be just as encouraged by the things that you've told us in your word that we have not yet obtained and yet are very, very real. We love you, Lord. We thank you for giving us a hope we're living for. We pray that you'd help us to memorize, to to learn, to see all your promises and to take them serious. In Jesus' name, amen.